0: Let's pray. God the Father, may you be glorified. God the Son, may I speak only your words. God the Spirit, move in the hearts of all who hear this message today and draw them to the Father. Amen. Now, Before we really dig into the Trinity, I want to remind you of something that Adam said last week. He said, in the Bible, God is revealing himself, not explaining himself. This is something that's really important for us to remember as we read the Bible. Um, God could have given us a resume. He could have given us a bulleted list or maybe a manual about who he is, right? Wouldn't that have been helpful? Um, But he didn't. He gave us a story an awesome story about who he is and who he is in relationship to us. And one of the benefits of this is that unlike a manual, a story speaks to our hearts and minds. Let me give you an example. If I ask you, what is an apple to you, what comes to mind? Hmm? Is it maybe a memory of grandma and her apple tree? Or... Maybe it's that time you bobbed for apples with your friends. Or maybe you have a fond memory of sharing a caramel apple with somebody. Uh, Maybe you're starving right now and just talking about apples makes your mouth water, right? If all we learn in life is that this is an apple and, um, you know, you can eat it, we'd be missing a whole lot. Even the biology of an apple is like a story. And it looks like they already played the story for you, right? We start with a seed and then we have a stalk that becomes a trunk and then we have blossoms eventually and, and then fruit and those fruit in turn have seeds. Not to mention the plethora oh, there are the seeds in the stalk yep, and the blossoms right? And they become fruit and then we have seeds again. These this story of biology doesn't even mention the, the actual stories that we have in life that are feature apples, right? You all are familiar with this story. And some of you may know this story from uh, physics class or have read these books as kids. Um, and the last two, if you don't know them, You should look them up. They're good stories. William Tell and Hercules and the Golden Apple. They're great stories, and they feature apples, right? It's more than just an object. Stories are important. By revealing himself in a story, not a manual, God invites us to ask questions. And it should prompt us to pursue God in relationship to seek answers to these questions. It's so important. By revealing himself in a story, God invites us to ask questions. And it prompts us to pursue him in relationship. At the end of this series on the Trinity, I hope you have more questions than you have answers. Today's sermon, though, I want to give you... A little warning here. It's not organized as many sermons that we Presbyterians love, right? We all love the sermons that have the three points with the nice, neat sub points underneath, right? Um, That's not this sermon. Today we are going to unpack a story. And the story, the sermon follows the story from beginning to end. Um, Can you tell me what's more important, the beginning, middle, or end of a story? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. Um can you grasp how profound an ending is if you don't have if you haven't experienced the beginning? That that might be difficult. So with that let's open to the first page and take a look at the Trinity and especially the Son of God in the whole story of the Bible. And um I do promise that we will be done before lunch tomorrow. Um <laughs> We're going to zoom out a lot, right? We're going to zoom out a lot. We're going for, like, space station height, right? 250-something miles above the earth, right? We're not, we're not going to be looking super, super finely. From the first words in the Bible, we meet the Trinity, and Jesus is a central figure. The text specifically mentions the Spirit of God hovering before creation, but all three persons are there active in creation, Consider this reading. In the beginning, God the Trinity created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God the Son said, let there be light. And there was light. And God the Father saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. If we see God as a trinity existing in relationship for all time, creation becomes an expression of a loving and creative God rather than a list of so-and-so did X, Y, Z. In Hebrews 1.10, the son of God, Jesus, is called Lord and God who laid the foundations of the earth. In the introduction to the book of John, the apostle is more specific. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Father, and the Spirit. And the Word was God, the Son. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When the Bible tells us Jesus was present and participating... In creation as part of the Godhead, we must affirm that God the Son is fully God. Now, what's more profound than the fact that God created everything is the fact that he created humanity specifically for the purpose of of sharing a relationship with him. From the beginning, God wants intimacy with us. But when Adam and Eve break the one rule God gave them, they break their ability to have relationship and intimacy with God. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says, Adam and Eve were created as lovers in the image of God. They could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. In Genesis 3, the problem is deeper than actions, deeper than outward disobedience. Eve's act of sin was merely the manifestation of the turn in her heart. She now desired the fruit more than she desired God. And this, says James, is just how it is with all sin. It flows from our desires and what we wrongly love. Those who were made to enjoy the beauty of the Lord turned away to enjoy their own. Love's longings and desires and the desires of their heart shifted from the Lord to themselves. Now in this story, God quickly deals with the sin in part. Adam and Eve are cast from the garden and from the presence of the Lord, but they don't immediately die and God gives the promise of the serpent's death. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, someday a child of the woman will kill you, Satan. Now, this is a this is really important point, theologically, for so many reasons, um, but today, what's, what strikes out, stands out to me is that this is where God promises a human redeemer. As a woman, I am biologically incapable of producing offspring that is anything but human. Your head might start spinning now, which is okay, because God the Son is fully human. He is also fully God. You might say God is the perfect definition of a paradox. You see, it would never satisfy the justice of God for the one who redeems the world to be only God. And it would be impossible for the one who is only human to live the spotless life necessary to break sin and death for all. You and I know that this promised child is Jesus born in a manger. Now, the night that God comes to earth as a baby, heaven sings so earth can hear. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace on whom his favor rests. Until Jesus arrives, though, God gives his people repeated pictures and reminders of what happened to the relationship between God and man, and promises that God will make it right. In Exodus through Deuteronomy, Israel is given the law at Mount Sinai, and a chunk of that law is about the priests who would serve in God's tabernacle and eventually the temple. Their job was to be the representatives for the people before God. And there was always, there was always one high priest, and this high priest had special responsibilities. On Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, he would symbolically sacrifice a goat, which would die for the sins of the people, and he would bring its blood into the very presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. Now, it was just symbolic, um, of course, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. On the true day of atonement, Christ, the high priest, would sacrifice not a goat, but his own body, our flesh and blood on the cross. Now, John 17, the passage that Len read, um, Len is very apt at saying it, it should be called the Lord's Prayer. Um, it's more commonly known, though, as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in it, Jesus goes about the more ordinary work of the high priest. right? The Day of Atonement was just one day out of the year. According to Michael Reeves, every day the high priest was to offer a sweet-smelling incense before the Lord in the tabernacle And he was to do so while wearing over his heart a golden plate, onto which were fixed 12 jewels. Each of those jewels was inscribed with the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Thus, the high priest would be in the presence of the Lord with the people of God, as it were, on his heart. And that is precisely what Jesus was about in John 17. He comes before God, his Father, with the incense of his prayers, and he does so with the people of God on his heart. My prayer is not for them, the apostles, alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. God the Son came from his Father, became one of us, died our death, all to bring us back with him to be before his Father, like the jewels on the heart of the high priest." Jesus' first prayer for all his people is that all of them may be one, Father, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. It is a highly appropriate prayer for Jesus to pray as our high priest. For Psalm 133 begins, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oils poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's head, down upon the collar of his robes. The psalm is referring to the ordination of Aaron, Moses' brother, as high priest, where the sacred anointing oil would be poured out on his head. Just so would Christ, the anointed one, be anointed by the Spirit at his baptism. And as the oil ran down from Aaron's head to his body, so the Spirit would run down from Christ, our head, to his body, the church. Thus we become partakers of his anointing. The Spirit, through whom the Father had eternally loved the Son, would now anoint believers that they may be one as we are one. That's right. He says, this is salvation with jam on top, right? I don't know about you, but I'm a fan of salvation with jam on top. Amen? Yeah. It's crazy. Um, a little side note. I, have you ever thought about what Jesus sacrificed to come to earth, right, into our space and time? I mean think about it he he literally existed in the presence of God the Father and he gave that up for a time he comes to earth as a baby I mean wow Often when I hear people talk about Jesus's sacrifices and all that he's sacrificed all he's done for us right they're they're primarily in and 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 maybe exclusively sometimes talking about um, everything that follows the Last Supper, his arrest, his 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 trial, and his sacri- his his the the cross, right, which is an essential and a central and important part of what he did. It, there would be no story without that. Um, but what about everything before that? Was that not also a sacrifice? Um, Anyway, I'm going to leave that to you. There's, you can dig more into that with your diving deeper questions later this week, but um, we're going to move on. Now, who remembers what it was that God wants with humanity from the beginning? Participation. Relationship, yes. He wants that intimacy with us. And there can be no intimate relationship with God without Jesus. Without the sinless God-man making right what we put wrong. And Jesus could not put it right without being who he is, fully God and fully man. God the Father wants to be one with you and me as he is one with his Son. Now, in the book of Revelation we get a picture of a someday reality when Christ and the church are brought together in perfect unity because the story isn't over yet, right? We we are living in the already but not yet part of the story. Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's you and me. I want to close with a last reflection from Michael Reeves. The Father is not about sprinkling blessings from afar. And his salvation is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied and forgiven by our creator. Instead, he pours all his blessing out on his son and then sends him that we might share in his glorious fullness. The father so loves That he desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship he enjoys with his son. And that means I can know God as he truly is, as Father. In fact, I can know God the Father as my Father. Let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to us, for being who you are, fully God and fully man. May you stir our hearts to ask more questions about who you are and who you are to us. Knowing that you have paved the way so that we can come to the Father as our own. Father. Amen.